second sermon, our second commandment that's brought to us by Steve via a video. Well, hello, everyone. Sorry to be speaking to you again in this way. COVID has struck me again. And uh, so we'll do our best here with, uh, with this particular one. Thanks for your prayers. As we turn to the second commandment, I wonder if anybody can identify these two items, uh, well-known cultural items. The first, a statue, and the second, a painting. The first is Michelangelo's David. I know many of you have seen this firsthand. It's a marble statue made in the early 1500s uh, by the sculptor Michelangelo. It's said to depict David, the biblical David, and it's said to depict him just before he fought his battle with Goliath. I don't know about you, but I don't reckon he looked like that. The second is the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was painted by Leonardo da Vinci again in the early 1500s, around about the same time. And it's of an Italian noblewoman of the same name. And yet from there, there's been a lot of ink spilled about who was this woman and what was she about and why are her eyes like that and all sorts of things. But it's all about what Leonardo meant by it. What was he thinking? What was he trying to show us about her and so on? Now, these are great pieces of art and well-known across the world. But if you're anything like me, when you hear Michelangelo and Leonardo be spoken of, the first thing you think of is this. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, hey? Well, the second commandment has nothing to do with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it does have a little bit to do with the paintings and the sculptures. The second commandment follows on, unsurprisingly, from the first. Thanks, Matt, for bringing us that word today. And the first commandment was about how the people of God were saved by him out of Egypt, and they were to have only one God. In fact, there was only one real and true God, the true God that had spoken to them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were to have no other gods but him. And this second commandment takes it a step further. If the first commandment was about having the right God, the only God, the second commandment is about worshipping him the correct way. Because you see, right throughout the history of God's people Israel, they would have been guilty of this. Not only do we know that they bowed down to idols and statues and towers and pillars and various other things throughout their history, But famously, just a few chapters later, in Exodus chapter 32, they made the famous golden calf. But I don't know if you remember. In Exodus 32, when they made the golden calf, they did so because Moses was still on the mountain and taking so long to come down. And so Aaron, urged on by the people, gathered all of the gold and put it all together and, in his words, out popped this calf. But when they made the calf... They said, Israel, these are your gods who have brought you up out of Egypt. See, they were still trying not to follow a false god in this time, but follow the true God, yet they were doing it in the wrong way. They had abandoned the commandment, the second commandment, that we see here in these few verses. The second commandment finds its place in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through to 6, and its uh, its similar passage in the book of Deuteronomy as well. So let's turn to it now and see what it's really saying to us. Commandment number two, Exodus 20, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness 
of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God's saved and chosen and holy people saved out of Egypt are not to make for themselves an idol, an image, a likeness of anything else that they can possibly think of. Now, of course, when people have made idols or images or likenesses in various different religions down over the years and millennia of this uh, world in which we live, they have often done so uh, in order to provide their worship a more productive sense of achievement or to have it be more vibrant or in some ways more powerful. These images or, or, uh, or statues or idols can serve as a gathering place for people. And they've become an item over time that have gathered their own spiritual power and history. But for the people of God in the Old Testament, and still for us today, this is not to be, this commandment says. But why? I mean, if we had an idol, if we had a statue of God, and that was able to help us worship him better, why should we not use it? Well, the big problem with idols is that it misrepresents God. In misrepresenting God, we misunderstand who he really is. Now, this could be seen in a number of different ways, but let me share with you just five separate ways where this takes shape. First of all, think about this for a moment. In John chapter 4, we're told that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so, to build an idol of God or an idol of anything else is to misrepresent who God really is. How can you represent a spirit at all, let alone in some sort of image or in some sort of likeness or in some sort of idol? Secondly, by definition, an idol is mute. The Mona Lisa can't talk, neither can Michelangelo's David. And so there is no way an image or an idol, or a statue, or a painting, or any sort of likeness, can show God as the God who speaks. And many of you know I like to go to the Sydney Cricket Ground, and at the Sydney Cricket Ground there's a statue uh, at the southern end of a man called Yabba. And Yabba would sit on the fence and he'd yell and scream all sorts of things uh, many, many decades ago to the cricketers out in the middle of the field, sledging and having a go and all those Australian things that took place at the cricket. And yet, though there is a statue of him at the, at the Sydney Cricket Ground, we still don't know a whole lot about him. I mean, what did his voice sound like? Was it an angry sort of tone or playful tone? Uh, was uh, he prone to losing his voice and so on and so forth? By looking at the mute statue of Yabba, you know a little bit about him, but ultimately you misrepresent who he is. Thirdly, an idol, by definition, is still, it's static. It doesn't move, it doesn't do anything. Whatever it does is imported by us. We give it its power. Its power is not in and of itself. The power is in the mind of the person worshipping it rather than in the item itself. And again, this misrepresents God because God is an active God, always at work, always moving, always loving. He's always at work. Fourthly, and obviously, the idol is powerless. It cannot do anything where the Lord God is powerful. And so showing a statue or an image or a likeness of God in any way will not be able to depict 
the strength of his power and the fact that he is a powerful God. We will misrepresent him. And finally, the idol or image or likeness says more about the author than it does the object itself. Now, you might be more well-read than me, but I wasn't aware that Michelangelo's David depicted him before he took on the battle with Goliath. Maybe you know that already, but I would suggest to you that you know more from this statue about Michelangelo than you do about David. You might have known the statue's name was David. You might not have known that. But you know a whole lot less about the David from the Bible as a result of this statue and a whole lot more of the one who sculpted it, Michelangelo. And so here's what it means for us. God cannot be captured in an idol, an image, or a likeness. He's bigger than our creation in every part. And even if we put all of the pieces of creation together, we will not be able to get a picture of what God is like. We will always misrepresent him. And so God cannot be a statue to whom we make a pilgrimage. He cannot be an amazing series of visions we see with our eyes. We're told, aren't we, in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses goes over these things once again, he reminds the people that when he was on the mountain, they saw no form but only heard a voice. And we read in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We find out throughout the Bible that God is a speaking God. And when we misrepresent him in static and mute idols, where we make statues, even well-meaning ones, we cannot help but misrepresent God. For God speaks to us and reveals himself to us in that way. That is not something tangible that can be made into an idol. And so God says, do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness at all. And so we should be careful in our own hearts and minds not to create any representations in our hearts, in our minds, or with our hands, because they will all be misrepresentations of God and who he truly is, as he's truly revealed himself to us in his word. See, part of the reason God does not want us to make idols is not just so that we will go not go and follow other gods, and that's a really bad idea, but that's the first commandment. But he says it here so that we will not misrepresent him. And so then what about Jesus? Well, this is where it gets a little more tricky. Jesus is the one who has made the invisible God visible, who took the infinite God and and took on a body and became temporal and finite with us where we are. And yet strikingly, unlike novels and genres of years gone by, we don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what his hair colour was. We don't know what his height was. We don't know the complexion of his skin, all that sort of stuff. We simply don't know. And so should we draw a picture of Jesus? Should we allow children's Bibles to have depictions of Jesus in them? Well, I don't believe this is a terrible thing. I think God has made himself visible in the person of Jesus. And yet, there is something more than his visibility. This is why we have in the Gospels no description of what he is like. Jesus was visible and temporal so that we as human beings might understand him. 
but most of the visual depictions we have of Jesus seem to have him coming from Southern California rather than from the Middle East. It's important for us to make sure that if we do draw a picture of Jesus or have him in a children's Bible, that we do so understanding the challenges that are there amidst, uh, amidst this. It must be important that we don't have such a striking picture of Jesus that we think that he is always looking over us because of the painting and not because of the truth of the gospel. Indeed, if anybody of regular intelligence would stick with the children's Bible throughout their life instead of the pages of the Bible, this would be a problem because God would be misrepresented through it. Well then, uh, finally we see in verses 5 and 6 why we should not bow down. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I am I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third, third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're not to have these idols because God is a jealous God. We do not like it when we are misrepresented, when someone says or does something that is not who we are. And so too it is with God. God is a jealous God and he wants us to know who he is and not misrepresent him. And he says in verses 5 and 6, this strange sort of section that he will punish. It seems as though he's going to punish generations afterwards for the sins of the fathers beforehand. But this is not quite true. Notice in verse 5, it's for those who hate those who hate me. All of those four generations hate him. The point here is that... It, it, it is a possible possibility for subsequent generations to follow in the footsteps of their foolish parents. And this is what would happen for the nation of Israel. They must learn from this warning and turn back to God. Again, not turning him into an idol and understanding him properly. And yet we see also the same is true in reverse. Verse 6 says, God shows steadfast love not to three or four generations, but to thousands this is not to be a mathematical formula, but simply to contrast the strength of God's love over and above his wrath. God is always ready to love for those who would turn to him, for those who would know who he really is in his character. And so the second commandment reminds us of who God really is. The second commandment is a reminder to us to allow God to reveal himself to us in his word as he promised to do and not taking into our own hands methods and manners which misrepresent our God who is powerful and active. He's a speaking God and he tells us of his great love to generations in the person of Jesus. Amen.